Here's a quick recap of where we've been in the book of Nehemiah uh, since August. It's year 445 BC, and God makes a way for a cupbearer to the king of Persia, uh, an exiled Jew named Nehemiah. God makes a way for him to come back to Jerusalem to repair a destroyed and desolate Jerusalem. And in less than a year upon Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem, that destroyed city is rebuilt and repopulated. And most importantly, what we see is that the people of God in Jerusalem and outside Jerusalem, are, 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 there's not just the physical restoration of the city, but the spiritual restoration of the city as well. The people of God are zealously repenting of their sins and recommitting their lives to the Lord. They vow that everything that our ancestors did that led to the exile, we will do the opposite. We won't worship false gods. We're going to honor the Sabbath. We won't forsake the house of God, so on and so forth. Last week, Jake gave an amazing sermon uh, on Nehemiah 12. Please go and listen to that. And where we left off, all that to say, where we left off last week was this, Nehemiah 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This was everything that Nehemiah wished would happen. This is everything that Nehemiah came to do. The full restoration of, of God dwelling in the midst of his people and that overflow of joyful reconciliation going outside the four walls of Jerusalem. And so what it seems as if, if you're reading through Nehemiah, you're like, this is a great ending to the book of Nehemiah, right? Like you expect at that moment, the verse we just read, that Nehemiah 13, the chapter we're in today, is basically like, and they lived happily ever after, and here's the credits of everyone that uh, was part of this great reconciling work, right? That's what, you, what is what you would think for Nehemiah 13. Instead, we get a different picture. Instead of they lived happily ever after, what we see in Nehemiah 13 is shockingly quick, the people of God forsook their covenant with God and chased after other gods. Shockingly quick. They, did, they literally did the exact opposite of what they promised they would not do. They broke their vows to God. And so the context of our text today in Nehemiah 13 is that Nehemiah uh, had a 12-year reign as governor of Judah, and he returns to Persia for a few years. He gets PCS, permanent change of station. He goes to Persia for a few years. And so uh, when the cat's away, the mice play. And where we're at in Nehemiah 13 is after that kind of three to maybe four, five-year uh, break, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah 13 is all about what he finds when he returns from his TDY in Persia. And a quick recap of what he found is this. I'm not going to read all of verse 13. I'm going to recap it to you is this. Is the first thing Nehemiah encounters in Nehemiah 13 is, do you guys remember Tobiah the Ammonite? The governor Amon, one of the three stooges, right, who was actively opposing the work of God, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, threatening Nehemiah and God's people with violence, like, I will kill you if you rebuild this wall. That Tobiah, when Nehemiah returns, that Tobiah is living in the house of God. He's living in the temple. He's got an Airbnb in the temple. Like, the priest done cleared out some sacred objects in one of the storehouses so that sacrilegious Tobiah could come and move into the house of God. So not off to a good start. Okay, bad start. Tobiah's there. Nehemiah kicks him out, moves out all of it, moves out his futon and his flat screen and his Xbox and says, you can't live in God's house, okay? Uh, and then the second thing we see is when Nehemiah returns, all of a sudden he realizes is that the Levites and the singers who are to be in the temple ministering to the Lord, leading people in worship of God in the temple of God in Jerusalem, 
They're not in the temple. They're working in their fields. It's like, it's like Nehemiah comes. He's got a 55-day journey from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. And he's like, hey, I'm going to stop at Starbucks before I go do my inspection. And he stops at Starbucks. And all of, these, all of a sudden, he's like, holy smokes, Shmuel, you're a Levite. You're making my cappuccino. Well, you're supposed to be in the temple. What are you doing? Isn't that the basis in the worship band? Like, stocking the shelves? What's happening here? And they're like, yeah, the people, the people who vowed, remember this line? We will not forsake the house of God. Remember that line? Well, guess what they did? They stopped tithing. They, stopped, they, they, they forsook the house of God. They stopped giving offerings so that God's servants in the temple had to, get, uh, had to stop doing what God called them to do and get other jobs. So uh, thankfully, well, not thankfully, but it gets worse. It doesn't get better. And then this is the third thing we see when uh, Nehemiah returns, is that in the name of greed and commercialism, God's people don't honor the Sabbath like they vowed they would. Nehemiah returns, and he finds them working and trading seven days a week, completely disregarding uh, God's command to rest on the Sabbath and to honor God's, God's ordained natural rhythms of work and rest. So he comes, he comes uh, back to Jerusalem on a Sunday, and he sees that Chick-fil-A is open. And he's like, whoa, Chick-fil-A is open on a Sunday. What's going on? Uh, let me get a spicy chicken sandwich real quick and then figure out what's going on, right? And true story, twice in my life, uh, I have left church and gone to a Chick-fil-A to get food and realized, oh, they honor the Sabbath. Dang. Uh, <laughs> God bless you, Christians. All right. And lastly and not least, the fourth thing in chapter 13 we see Nehemiah discovers is that a large group of Israelites had married forward women to the extent that their kids that uh, didn't even speak Hebrew or Aramaic which means is that um, the people of God, they're one generation from totally losing their faith if they can't understand the language of the scriptures. Um, and now before uh, we uh, get kind of unnecessarily triggered in regards to marrying foreign women, all that stuff, this wasn't an issue of race. Historically, it was an issue of religion. Uh, what we see uh, scripturally, and I'm about to show this to you in 1 Kings 11.4, is that when God's people would uh, intermarry, when they would marry foreign, what, what happened with that was that uh, that marriage would cause them to chase after the gods, the foreign pagan gods of their wives. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians 11.4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. The most important thing in your life is your relationship with God, the one God, the true God, the living God. And so things that would turn our hearts away to serve other gods, obviously, is frowned upon, to say the least, in Scripture. And so all that to say, the very things that led to the fall of Solomon, that led to the dividing of God's kingdom, Israel and Judah, and the very thing that led to the exile of God's people is what God's people are continuing to do. Nehemiah returns to an absolute mess in Jerusalem and it had to be utterly devastating for him. All of the blood, the sweat, the tear-filled prayers seem to be flushed down the drain. And what's wild is this is how the book of Nehemiah ends. And for an for, for preaching through Nehemiah, and this is the last sermon of the year, this is a great note to end on, right? Like, come and let's, let's talk about Nehemiah 13, right? Um, but in fact, it's actually beautiful. And the title, what I, what I, I have a couple titles for my sermon. Uh, the first title I was going to go with is this, God is great and we're not. But the other title I'm, I'm going with is this, God's unfailing love. God's unfailing love is that when we don't keep our word, we don't keep our promises to God, he stays faithful to his own. That his mercy covers a multitude of our sins and transgressions. And before we kind of shake our finger at the people of God in Nehemiah 13 and we say, oh, we're so unlike them. No, what we have to realize is this, 
is the story of the people of God in Nehemiah is your story and mine. That their pattern of behavior is our pattern of behavior. Where time and time again, we fall short of the standard of the glory of God. We fall short. We, we break our vows, our commitments to God. We fall back into the same sins. We find ourselves saying and doing things that we wish we would never do. And the question I want to ask for the brief remainder of my time today is this. Is what is the heart of the living and the true God towards sinners like you and me? What is his heart? When we're caught red-handed with no excuse for our behavior, what is God's response towards us? An approach I want to take this morning is Nehemiah's response in a way foreshadows the response of Jesus Christ and the work that he came to do. So the three points of my talk, if you're taking notes, and then we'll read scripture, pray, and dive in, is this, is that in response to our sin, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, in response to our sin, Jesus Christ, one, he invites us to something better. Two, he intercedes on our behalf. And three, he remains steadfast in his love. And so preparing for the sermon, I couldn't help but think of the parallel between Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah returns and he finds God's people caught in spiritual adultery. I couldn't help but think of the parallel between Nehemiah 13 and John chapter 8. The famous encounter where Jesus uh, uh, is, 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 is approached by some Pharisees who catch a woman caught in literal adultery. And Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery. So uh, our texts today are a, a bit of a mashup. You guys know what a mashup is? When you have one song over here and then you get a cool 80s song and you overlay it over there. All right, so we're doing a little bit of Nehemiah 13 and John 8. I'm going to read two of these. We're gonna, these are the two texts of scripture we're going to be looking at today. So Nehemiah 13, 30 through 31 says this. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And then John 8, 2 through 11. This is Jesus. This is the New Covenant, New Testament. Eyewitness account of who Jesus was and his heart for sinners. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you so grateful that you're a God of steadfast love. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to seek and chase after sinners like ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that um, it was while we were sinners, Jesus, that you went to the cross to die for us, that at our worst, you gave us your best, Lord Jesus. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come right now and you would minister that love to our hearts, God. You would wash away all the lies we believe about who God is, 
I pray right now, Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your word, you'd wash away the lies about your heart towards us, your heart towards sinners. And would you remind us at the close of this year around Christmas of the deep, eternal well of love and compassion and grace and kindness that you want to continually lavish upon us, Lord God. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way. Would it be your will that would be done? Would you speak through me, Lord God? Would, would uh, you anoint me for this time, God? I'm a man in need of help. Would you help me this morning to preach what is true and what is good? Would it be your words, your heart that is received? Would you increase, Lord? Would you be magnified? Would I decrease and be forgotten? And so come, Lord Jesus, have your way. Reveal the depths of your love for us this morning. And pray this in your name. Amen. All right, point number one. In response to our sin, Jesus continually invites us to something better. What we see in Nehemiah 13 is that in response to the kind of the four big transgressions that were named, Nehemiah boldly confronts the people's sins. And he exhorts them to repentance, to turn from their sin and turn back to God. And it seems harsh, it can seem condemning, but instead we see Jesus do the same thing to the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Notice Jesus doesn't say to the woman caught in adultery, does anyone condemn you? Neither do I content, con condemn you. Go and continue to, to live an adulterous life. Go and continue to live in this lifestyle, that which will bring ruin to you and to those around you. That's not a loving thing to do if you know that someone is walking on a path that leads to destruction in their life. That's not loving. What we see instead is Jesus says, I do not condemn you. They, I, no one has condemned you. I don't condemn you. But now Jesus invites this woman to something far better. And he says, go and leave your life of sin. He invites her to something better. That's not condemning. That's not closed-minded. That's actually the greatest act of love that Jesus actually now gives you the power. When he forgives you of your sins and fills you with the Holy Spirit, he actually gives you the power to live a new life filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with love that you didn't have before you gave your life to Jesus. So I, I was in Denver in October at a, a pastoral conference and um, anyone been to downtown Denver, you know that there's some hipster districts there, and uh, it's kind of hard to figure out where the sidewalk begins and the street begins. And I, me and uh, our pastoral intern, Jake, were walking in the street, okay? There were no signs about cars. I didn't see any cars. I thought it was a closed-off section to just kind of waltz about or whatever. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jake yells at me, grabs me, and thrusts me from where I'm at, and he brings me somewhere else. And initially, I'm kind of like, yo, I'm a grown man. Get your hands off me. <laughs> I wanted to walk there. That was a cool spot. I was cool with it. Why did you do that? And then immediately, I don't know, I don't know how Denver has the most quiet buses on the planet Earth. <laughs> They're electric, yeah. This thing was, I mean, this thing could sneak up on us right now. This thing was so, all of a sudden, I see this massive bus that was not slowing down because it was, it was some, some robot that was driving it. <laughs> Comes by me, and I realized that what looked like uh, um, an act of hatred, what looked like an act of uh, closed-mindedness was actually a great act of love, right? If my brother Jake didn't care about me, like, dude, this is awesome, he'd pull out his phone, he said, watch this. I'm like, why are you filming me? Just like, boom, right? No, he's like, I love you. And, and this is the gospel. Jesus sees that train coming, our sins that bring separation, and not only does Jesus thrust us out of the way, he takes the hit for us on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sins. That bus that's coming 
which is our penalty. Sin incurs death, eternal separation from God. Jesus absorbed that on the cross so that in him we could have everlasting life. And so he invites us continually to something better. This is what 2 Peter 3, 9 says about the heart of God towards sinners. This is God's heart towards us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise in some kind of slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it's critically important for us to understand the difference between condemnation and conviction. See, condemnation is a death sentence you just speak over someone. See, the religious, the religious folk in John 8, they just spoke a death sentence over this adulterer. She's an adulterer. She deserves death. Let's pick up stones and let's stone her. That's condemnation. Conviction is an invitation out of death into everlasting life. There's a world, there's an eternity of difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction of God by the Holy Spirit is one of the most beautiful things he can give us. It's the Lord yelling at us saying, there's a bus coming you can't see, but I can see it. Repent. Come to me for fresh forgiveness so that you can be taken out of death and into the life. I don't want you to die. Leave your life of sin and follow me. And this is the heart of Jesus. This is the grace we celebrate. This is the gift of God we celebrate on, on Christmas is that when we are caught red-handed as sinners, which we all are, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus continually calls us out of death and into life. He calls us out of bondage and into freedom. He calls us out of darkness and into life. And he calls us out of misery and into eternal joy. To the extent, his heart is so for you, to the extent that he would lay down his life for you on the cross so that you could come to experience life in him forever. So my question before we move on to my second point is this, is right now, what is Jesus inviting you to turn from today? What is he, what, what, maybe right now as I've been talking, you felt the presence of God. I pray, man, my life has been so changed by God. In October 2019, the Holy Spirit came upon me powerfully. The Lord came upon me powerfully and in supernatural ways for four days, radically changed my life. And I believe in faith right now that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to people right now. You're beginning to feel his presence and he's going to begin to call you to his heart, call you back home. It's all real. It's all real. And, 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 and my hope and prayer this morning is that you, the Holy Spirit, would come and God would give you eyes to see God rightly and, and wash away all the hurts maybe you've had from the church in the past and to see that God is a God of great love and of great mercy and of great compassion and of great kindness. What is he inviting you to turn from today and will you turn and receive the free gift of grace that he has for you? That's God's heart for the adulterer. That's God's heart for us when we sin, is he doesn't condemn us and just speak a death sentence over us. No, he dies in our place so that he can invite us from death into everlasting life. Secondly, Jesus, in response to our sin, not only does he always invite us to a fresh start, and our, the Christian life is a, is a journey of a million fresh starts that Jesus gives us, but Jesus, in response to our sin, secondly, he continually intercedes on our behalf. Three times in Nehemiah 13, we see Nehemiah pray. In response to the people's sins, three times Nehemiah prays this prayer. Remember me, God, for my good. Remember me, God, for my good. He cries out to God for grace and mercy. And in a similar way, what God's word makes clear is that as a response, in response to our sins, the reigning and ruling and resurrected Jesus continually intercedes and speaks on our behalf. Meaning this, in our moments of sin and failure and shortcoming as followers of Jesus, Jesus doesn't rush to condemn you. Jesus doesn't rush to accuse you. He rushes to defend you. 
He's not the prosecutor. He's your defense attorney, is what the scripture says. That, that's what intercession means. And this is what we see. Don't take my word for it. John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus rushes to not side with the self-righteous, hypocritical religious leaders. He sides with the accused, the condemned adulterer. And what's fascinating in John 8 is she doesn't say a thing. We have no record of her speaking anything in her defense. She was caught red-handed, no excuses for her actions, no explanation. Why? Because they're right. She's guilty. And although she didn't speak on our behalf, Jesus Christ chose to speak on her behalf. That's intercession. That's advocacy. And this is the simple yet beautiful definition of intercession is Jesus speaking on your behalf when the accusations come from the enemy. Jesus speaking on your behalf. So anyone here been to the PNC Club at Nats Stadium, Nats Park? Anyone? Okay, so a while back, uh, I'm not a huge baseball guy, but I'm a huge fan of like free food and great seats to sporting events. So I had a very, I have a, uh, an old mentor friend of mine, and uh, he is, uh, he's wealthy. He uh, got his grace to him with uh, a great job where he flips hotels. And uh, what's amazing is he was going to retire 10 years prior, but the Lord told him to work for 10 more years to make more money so that he could fund the kingdom of God globally. And um, so he scored some sweet tickets uh, to uh, Nats Park and the PNC Club. And so the PNC Club is like, uh, uh, it's this endless buffet of anything you could ever do eat, drink, or imagine, okay? And for all, like, nine innings, not only do you go early and you, and you feast for the glory of God, you sit and you watch game right behind home plate, and they have, like, waiters and waitresses that come up and say, hey, do you want whatever? And, dude, I, that night I had, like, three boxes of Cracker Jacks. It was amazing. Um, and sang that song all day long because I had Cracker Jacks since I was, like, five years old. It was awesome. And so I couldn't help but think, you know, like, <laughs> for the PNC Club, I felt out of place, I got to be honest, right? Like in my head, I'm just you know, these jokes of like, you know, the only way you get in is like you have to like show them your financial portfolio, you know, and like, hey, like I'm in my TJ Maxx best, you know, like my TJ Maxx matchup and I'm there. I'm like, man, I don't belong here. I can't even afford like the chicken wings here that they're serving, you know, and um, imagine now if you've ever been at a sporting event where someone comes up and they know you don't belong, right? And they're like, hey, show me your ticket, right? This didn't happen, but just imagine with me that it happened, all right? Like, show me, show, me, show me why you deserve to be here, right? Now, imagine I'm sitting there with my, 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 uh, my mentor friend who got me in, and the, the ticket lady comes up and is like, you don't belong here. You need to show me evidence of why you belong here. And before I can rush to my defense, and I'm kind of caught right-handed because I know I don't, I don't belong there. Like, I'm just, I'm just a dude who doesn't belong at PNC Club, right? That's not, that's not whatever. And before I can say a word, you want to know what intercession looks like? Be my friend, my brother. My mentor says, he's with me. He's with me. If you have an issue with him, you need to take it up with me. I paid for him to be here. Any expense that he's incurring, you credit to my account. He's with me. He belongs with me. That's what intercession looks like. When the accuser comes and your moment of weakness and failure and says, you don't belong here, God's going to forsake you. Jesus is crying out and say, and, 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 you, and you don't speak on your behalf. You say, hey, you take it up with my intercessor. You take it up with my advocate. According to him, I belong. He, on the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid my expense of sin. I belong at his side. Romans 8.34 puts it this way. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can condemn God's elect? Jesus has died. He's paid the penalty. You belong forever since past, present, and future. 
are paid for. Hebrews 7, 25, look at Jesus' response to our sins. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it begs the question, what is Jesus saying to the Father when the accuser comes to condemn and harass us in our moments of failure and sin and shortcoming? He prays what Nehemiah prayed, right? With a little twist. Remember Nehemiah prayed in Nehemiah 13, remember me for my good. Jesus prays, remember me, Father, for their good. Remember me, Father, for their good. Remember what I've done for Nick. Remember that all of his sins were, were, were placed upon my shoulders. The penalty was paid on that cross. He bears them no, long, no more. He's precious. He's your son. He's cleansed. He's forgiven. And the implication of this is for followers of Jesus, we no longer have to plead our case, defend ourselves, and speak a million excuses. And so my question to us this morning is, all of us, when we cross from this life to the next, death is a guarantee for every person in this room. There's no way to escape that. Who will speak on your behalf before your creator? Will, you spit, will, will, will we stand before our creator and give an, a, give an account before our creator and our Lord and defend ourselves for why we should be in his presence forever? Or will Jesus be the one speaking on our behalf and we'll be silent? And so the way we get this advocate and gain this advocate is we simply stop our defense from pleading not guilty to guilty. That's how we get this great advocate, Jesus, the great high priest, who will extend great, everlasting, and eternal mercy upon us. Grace is for sinners who know they need forgiveness, and Jesus died for sinners. And so if you're here today and you've made a mess of your life, and, and you know deep down that there is opposition between you and God and your sins, need cleansing, and tell me there's great news for you. It's a God of great love who has given the gift of the Son to cleanse you from all your righteous unrighteousness and bring you back home. The key that turns that is switching your defense from not guilty to guilty and in need of grace. And that is how we receive the free gift of salvation. Who will stand in your defense when we meet our creator face to face? Thirdly and lastly, and I'll conclude with this, Jesus in response to our sins he remains steadfast in his love towards us. What's interesting in John 8 is after the case is tried of the woman caught in adultery, we see everybody leaves the scene, right? Look at verse 9. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and we see Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And what I love about this picture is although everybody else walked away, Jesus didn't. He stayed, he remained, he drew near in response to her sin. He didn't flee in disgust. He drew near in response to her sin. And often our thinking is very religious in its mindset. We have to understand that we were, we were created for a relationship, not just for dutiful religion, but passionate, joy-filled relationship with the living God. And often we go into this religious mindset where we think God's love for us is based upon our moral performance. And so we think, uh, we think this, okay, uh, my, I'm hitting my quarterly religious stats really well this year. This quarter, man, I'm just hitting out of the park. I'm doing all my good deeds, all these things. And so the, the great CEO of heaven has to give me a promotion. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to get a blessing. I'm hitting all my quarterly stats. And uh, well, what happens when you don't hit those stats? What happens when you're in a season where it's really, really tough? Oh, when you have that mindset, it's, okay, well, God's going to fire me. I'm fired. 
right? That's the mindset we often fall into. And in contrast to that mindset, five more minutes and I'm done. In contrast to that mindset, (laughs) instead of God being steadfast in love, we believe he's fickle and unpredictable in his love. And in contrast to that, God's continual revelation of himself towards his people is that he is a God of steadfast love. Steadfast love. That word in the Hebrew is chesed, and the connotation of that, that's used 250 times. That word is used 250 times to describe God's love for his people. And what that word, steadfast love, hesed, connotates is this. It's a covenantal love that is unfailing, that is faithful, that is steadfast, and is loyal. And if you look up the dictionary definition of steadfast, it means this. Firmly fixed in place, not subject to change. And what that means is that your worst moments, God's steadfast love for you means this. It means Jesus isn't going anywhere. Jesus isn't going anywhere. Stated differently, you can't change his mind about you. God is radically for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's radically for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he's already made up his mind about you. He's staying, he's committed, he's not giving up on you, even at your worst. Dane Ortland, uh, the book uh, that I'm quoting is at the bookstore. I highly encourage you to get Gentle and Lowly. He says this. Have you considered, and band, you can come forward. <clears throat> Have you considered what is true of you if you are in Christ? In order for you to fall short of the loving embrace into the heart of Christ, both now and into eternity, Christ himself would have to be pulled out of heaven and put back in the grave. His death and resurrection make it just for Christ never to cast out his own, no matter how often they fall. I hope you receive that today. But animating this work of Christ is the heart of Christ. He cannot bear to part with his own, even when they most deserve to be forsaken. But I, but I, but I, raise your objections. None can threaten these invincible words of Jesus. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For those united to him, the heart of Jesus is not a rental. It is your new permanent residence. You are not a tenant. You are a child. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is the green pastures and still waters of endless reassurance of his presence and his comfort, whatever our present spiritual accomplishments. It is who he is. And so you might be asking this morning, well, how can we be sure of God's love for us that when we sin and when we, when we fall short again that he won't leave us and forsake us? Our confidence rests in this, Romans 5.8. The God of the universe shows his love for humanity in this, that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Meaning this, Jesus, knowing full well the extent of all your sins, your biggest regrets, your biggest moral failures, past, present, and future, he still willingly chose to go to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and clear your debt of sin so that you can be restored to eternal fellowship with God. And as the whip was cracking on Jesus' back and the crown of thorns was thrust in his skull and the nails were driven into his hands and his feet, he was enduring this for you, not when you were at your best, but when you were at your worst. 
Because it's while we were sinners that Christ went to the cross for us. And it was in his power to leave that pain, that agony at any moment. He did not have to remain on that cross. He did not have to endure that. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. And yet, in the greatest act of love in history, Jesus stayed. He stayed on that cross. And he stayed on that cross for you. That's what steadfast love looks like. Jesus not fleeing in disgust for your sins. Jesus staying on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for your sins. And my hope for us this morning is that you would leave and close the new year, uh, 2022, close this year out with this in mind. If Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on that old rugged cross, if Jesus Christ, transit family, received this, if he stayed for you then on that cross, will he not stay for you now? Will he not remain with you now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you're a God whose mercies are new every morning. We thank you, God, you didn't come to condemn us and just speak a death sentence over us. No, you spoke a death sentence over your son so that we could have eternal life in him. We thank you, God, that you're a God who's steadfast in his love. You don't want anyone to perish. You want all to come to everlasting life and to be healed and be saved, to experience your love forever. And we don't deserve it, God. We don't deserve it. No one has loved us the way that you have loved us. Your word says not very many people will die for good folks. Not many people will lay down their life for righteous people. Jesus, you died for sinners. You died for adulterers. You died for self-righteous hypocrites. You died for murderers. That's who you died for, Jesus. And as they were driving the nails into your hands, you prayed for the very people that were putting you to death, Jesus. And you interceded on their behalf and you said, Father, forgive them, those who are killing me. They know not what they're doing. That's your heart. That's the true God. That's the living God. That's your kindness, your grace. That's your steadfast love. 
And so we thank you, Jesus, that you came to bring life and life abundantly for all eternity. And, and we respond with praise and thanksgiving today, Lord God. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd melt our hearts of stone. Lord Jesus, where there's been hardness, Lord, in our hearts, that right now, Holy Spirit, you'd overwhelm us with your love and your presence. And we begin to see that it's all real. You're real. Your love is real. Your kindness is real. Your redemption is real. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Who are we that you would invite us to your presence? Who are we that you would invite us to your table? Lord God, which we get to celebrate by taking communion today. And yet we know, Lord God, that because of you, you love us, we belong at your table as your sons and daughters, that our debt of sin is paid and forever we are secure in your love and no one and nothing can separate us from your love for us. So we love you, we bless your name. And all God's people said, amen.